The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. This morning's reading comes from uh, the book of Matthew, and it's the first uh, 17 verses of chapter 1. So this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. These are the words of God. Please be seated. Well, my family and I, we have some Black Friday traditions. I don't know if you guys have any Black Friday traditions. Ours have nothing really involved with hitting the stores for shopping. Um, For us, we wake up on the Friday after Thanksgiving and we go out for breakfast, usually hit up the Village Inn, you know, and then um, after breakfast, we we make our way over to the local tree farm out there off uh, Nebraska Parkway and Apples Way. Uh, You might know it by its commercial name, Lowe's. Okay, Uh, we hit up the local tree farm out there. We get us a nice fresh cut uh, Fraser fir, I'm sure from Canada, and we take it home on top of the car, you know, strap it up there, get it home, and, um, and, and we, we set it up, and we, we decorate that thing, and we get the hot chocolate out, and we play the, the Christmas music, and then uh, once the tree's all set up, you know, we go outside, or at least I do, usually the, the energy is starting to dwindle a little bit by then, but I go outside and try to pull a kid or two along and get all the lights up on the house outside, you know, and, and oh man, I got these, these new candles this year, you know, like the three foot tall, like glowing 
uh, kitschy uh, Christmas candles from the 80s. They don't make them like that anymore. They just, they don't. They probably got an LED in them or something dumb like that. I'm talking the things from the 80s. I've been waiting for a set of these for decades, and I got them, and they're up. And, and so all the Christmas lights are up. The Christmas tree is up. The Christmas music is on. Why do we do all this stuff? Why do we, why do, we do it? Um, well, we do it to get into the Christmas season, to, to celebrate Christmas essentially like all month long, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and we're sure not going to stop our traditions, uh, but celebrating Christmas all month long, I want us to see is different than celebrating Advent. It's different. Today's the first Sunday of Advent, the season on the church calendar where we mark off the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. But Advent, it's, it's not merely an elongated celebration of Christmas. That's actually more of a product of our secular commercialization of Christmas, which of course insists that this is the most wonderful time of the year, even though it gets dark at like 4.30, right? It's the most wonderful time of the year. Um, but Advent and Christmas are actually... They're actually two different things on the church calendar. See, Advent, that word, it means coming. It means arrival. It's a season of, of waiting for the coming. It's a season of waiting for the arrival, the longing for the arrival even. Christmas, then, is a celebration of that arrival, the first coming of Jesus at his incarnation when he took on flesh, when he was born in the manger, to Mary and Joseph there in Bethlehem. I mean, Christmas is the celebration, it's the fulfillment of the first Advent. Advent, then, is what leads us up to celebrating Christmas on the one hand, and then on this side of the original Christmas Day, followed some 30 years later by the first Good Friday and the first Easter when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the grave. Advent for us, as 21st century Christians, is both a looking back upon the longing and the waiting that led to Jesus' first coming, but even more importantly for us, a looking forward. A looking forward with longing and waiting for Jesus' second coming, when he will one day come again. And as we think about Advent as a season of waiting and longing, what I want you to ask yourself this morning is this, what am I waiting for? What am I longing for? Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of longing for the day when Jesus will return. Advent is an invitation, therefore, for you to be openly vulnerable, like, like 100% brutally transparent about the deepest, not yet filled, Longings of your heart. What do you long for? I love how author Fleming Rutledge talks about Advent. She writes this. She says, of all the seasons of the church year, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church, asks the most important ethical questions, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition and above all, orients us to the future of the God who will come again. And then she says, the disappointment, brokenness, 
suffering and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. And in that Advent tension, the church lives its life. What do you long for? How is this Advent tension that Rutledge is talking about here, how does that manifest in your life? What are you waiting for? What disappointments are you waiting to see fulfilled? What brokenness are you longing to see restored? What suffering are you waiting to see healed? What are you waiting for? And our text this morning, as we start a new series in the book of Matthew, it it actually addresses this Advent tension. It addresses us in the waiting, and it tells us the waiting is over, and yet it's not yet over. But it will one day be fully and finally over. Turn in your Bibles to the passage Marty just so excellently read just a little bit ago. I think we would agree, right? It's Matthew chapter 1, page 807 of the Black Pew Bibles there, if if you're in that thing. Uh, The first thing I want us to see this morning is the shape of this text and what it meant to to Matthew's original readers. All right, we got to understand what it said to them if we're going to be able to understand and apply what it says to us. Now, what we have here is we open up the very first book of the New Testament is a genealogy, all right? And some of you, you know, especially if you were here all fall and working through the book of Numbers, you, we read this genealogy and you're like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, like more names, more names. Uh, and I get it. Genealogies can, can seem kind of boring, um, but uh, not this one. Uh, this one, this genealogy here to Matthew's first readers was far from boring. It was good news. It was gospel. And in order to see how this genealogy is good news, you need to understand its shape. It's actually organized as three sets of 14. Matthew emphasizes this in verse 17, just so we won't miss it. Look at verse 17. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon uh, to the Christ, 14 generations. Generations. So three sets here of 14. And the ESV actually does a nice job of putting it into paragraphs to even help us to see the shape a little bit. Again, the first section, it's verses 2 through the first half of verse 6. And it covers the, the, the story of the scriptures essentially from Abraham to David. Or in your Bible, right, the book of Genesis through roughly the end of 2 Samuel. If you're looking at your Old Testament. The second set then runs from the second half of verse 6 through verse 11, and it covers from David to the Babylonian exile in the year 586 B.C. In the Bible, that's roughly 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings, through basically the end of the Old Testament scriptures with a few exceptions. And then lastly, we have from the time of the deportation to Babylon, that exile into Babylon, to the birth of Jesus. We read, around, we read about Zerubbabel leading the first group of Israelites back to Jerusalem 70 years after the deportation. You can read about that in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
The Old Testament minor prophets of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi ministered during this time, if you're reading through your Old Testament. Now, listen, there's all kinds of interesting ways to dissect and examine and study this genealogy. There is, it's a very interesting genealogy, a very unique genealogy. It's also not a perfectly exact genealogy like you might be trying to find for yourself on Ancestry.com. Instead, it's a genealogy that that has some gaps. Uh, It's a genealogy that includes the names of five women, which would have been unusual for the time. Some of them are not even Jewish. Very unusual. It's a genealogy that actually contains some alterations, even. For example, Asaph, the psalmist, where Asa, the king, should have been in verses 7 and 8. Or Amos, the prophet, where Amon should have been in verse 10. All of which leads us to understand that Matthew here is, he's not trying to provide a precise historical rendition of the family tree. He's not trying to get every little branch of the family history documented perfectly. He's aiming instead to make a literary point. Multiple literary points, most likely. But one literary point he's making comes from the very shape of the genealogy itself. Again, the first section traces us from Abraham to David. All right, David, uh, Abraham, of course, is the, the one that God made a covenant with all the way back in Genesis that he would make him a great nation. We've been talking about this all through Numbers. Right? He's going to make him a great nation. Um, he's going to give him the promised land. And then through Abraham and his offspring, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. And as we read the Old Testament from Abraham to David, we we see a lot of that coming true. It's messy. And we saw a lot of that mess in in the book of Numbers. But if you zoom out and survey the whole from Abraham to David, we can say overall there is an upward trajectory, even if there's a whole bunch of downs in there, right? It's an upward trajectory. In fact, when we get to David in the Old Testament, there is a sense for God's people that the waiting was over. It was over. God even made a covenant with David in the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, promising that David and his throne would be established forever. Like the waiting was over. I mean, it took a thousand years to get from Abraham to David. That's a lot of waiting. But when we get to David, we have a great nation. They're in the promised land. They have a king. They're established. God's people in God's land, living according to God's ways, and therefore everything is set in one sense for all the peoples of the earth to be blessed through them. The waiting was over. And yet, as we keep reading the Old Testament, what we understand is that that upward trajectory turns down. After David, we have Solomon. And then next, verse 7, named Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was a horribly wicked and extremely foolish king. So unwise, actually, that the kingdom, which had just been established two generations before him, the kingdom now actually divides into two. His son, next in the genealogy, Abijah, was also a bad king. Jehoshaphat, verse 8, was a good king. Joram was another bad one. And so we're heading downhill all the way to Jeconiah and the deportation to Babylon, or what we often call the Babylonian exile. 
where we have God's king dethroned, God's people deported, and God's land ruled and possessed by others. The waiting isn't yet over, is it? It was over, and yet it wasn't over. The third set gets us quickly to Zerubbabel, who led the first group of Israelites back to Jerusalem after the exile. They rebuilt the wall. They lived there. But Israel as a nation never really regained all of its glory. The throne was never really ever fully reestablished. Not long after the return from exile, though the prophets had proclaimed a coming one, a Messiah who would come and reestablish and rule from David's throne, not long after the return from exile, things go silent. In fact, in Matthew's genealogy here, after Zerubbabel, in that third set, the names of the rest of these people after Zerubbabel, until you get to like Joseph, aren't actually in the Old Testament. They appear out of darkness. They appear out of silence. After the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, there's no prophetic words. The prophecies cease. God goes silent for about 400 years. Now look what Matthew is doing here. He, he takes us through the rise to David. He takes us through that rise to David. Like The waiting was over. And then down the fall to the deportation. It's not yet over. He takes us through the rise, down the fall, and into the waiting, into the longing. The, the waiting and the longing for the advent, for the coming, for the arrival of the Messiah, which means anointed one. The one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke of saying, for to us a child is born. And for to us, this son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, Isaiah said, and, the, and of peace, there's going to be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. <laughs> That's what God's people were waiting for in the Old Testament here. They were waiting for the end of their waiting. Matthew, do you see it? He's not applying for an early reservation of the domain name Ancestry.com, he's writing to take us into the waiting. The waiting for the deliverer. The, the waiting for the Savior. And then Matthew tells us, the wait is over. This is actually what verse 1 is about in the text. In fact, verse 1 serves as a summary for the entire passage. How does Matthew start? He writes the book of the genealogy. Genealogy in the Greek is the word genesis. Sound familiar to anyone? It should. It means beginning. It's the beginning. The beginning of what? Matthew says it's the beginning of Jesus. 
Now, Jesus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And so Matthew was telling us that this is the beginning of Yahweh saves. In other words, the wait is over. The wait is over. He's the Christ. Matthew calls him Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. All right, Christ is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. This is the Messiah who has come, the one they had been waiting for, the one who had been sent by Yahweh himself to save, to save. Make no mistake, church, this genealogy to Matthew's original mostly Jewish readers was good news. There was no better news than this news. This good news for them said, the waiting is over. And this is how we get from from them to us. In the Old Testament, God's people were waiting. God's people, we might say, have always been awaiting people. All the way back to the garden. Like all the way back to to Genesis 3.15, after sin came into the world, God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. This is what's known as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the first promise of the good news that one would come to put an end to the enemy. And in a way, this promise encapsulates every other promise in the Old Testament, shaping God's people into awaiting people. God's people have always been awaiting people. In the Old Testament, they were waiting for the coming of Jesus. And now, on this side of all that, we're waiting for him to come again. You and I are awaiting people. See, the the shape of this genealogy is also the shape of the gospel in our life. In one sense, the waiting is over. I mean, Jesus has come. He's the Savior of the world. And if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you're saved. He he came to save. That's what Matthew's telling us. This is the beginning of Yahweh saves. Many of us in this room believe that. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. We believe, to use the words of the old historic Nicene Creed, right, that for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. That he was incarnate, that he was born, that he took on flesh. That he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. That he suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. When we believe that, we're saved. Meaning, in one sense, the waiting is over. It's over. The, the, the waiting for our sins to be forgiven is over. The, the waiting for our relationship with God to be restored is over. 
The, the waiting for the, for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us and empower us and strengthen us. It's over. The waiting for purpose. The waiting for meaning in your life. It's over. The waiting for an unshakable identity. It's over. The waiting for rest from our weary religious efforts to please God is over. The waiting for joy. The waiting for peace. If you believe in Jesus, the waiting is over. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, that waiting is not yet over. Not for you. But... What are you waiting for? Believe and be saved is a simple call to the unbeliever here this morning. It's simple. Believe and be saved and the waiting for these things and also all that's going to follow that I'm about to talk about is over for you too. Right now, right here, it can be. The waiting is over. And then in another sense, even for us as believers, the waiting isn't yet over, is it? I think there's actually two clues to this reality when we consider verse 1. That Matthew refers here, when he refers here to Jesus as the son of Abraham and the son of David. By referring to Jesus as the son of Abraham, Matthew was calling to mind, again, all the promises that God had made to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that those promises back in Genesis 12 and 17 and 22 were made to Abraham's offspring, singular. It does not say offsprings, Paul says, but offspring who is Christ. In other words, through Jesus, Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, <laughs> all this is loaded into the title, Son of Abraham. Right? It was the promise of a seed that would be a blessing to everyone. And this fits really nicely with, with the final words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Where Jesus commissions the disciples, and through them you and me by extension, to go and do what? Make disciples of all nations. Paul talks in Romans 11 of the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. We live in a time when the gospel is going out. It is still going out. You and I are to be taking it out to neighbor and nation. And as we do, we're waiting. We're waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. The fullness of unbelievers that God so chooses to have come in and believe in the gospel. And in that sense, the waiting is over. And it's not yet over. There's work to do. But then there's another sense too. Jesus isn't just referred to as the son of Abraham. Matthew also calls him here in verse 1, the son of David. A name that is repeated something like eight more times in Matthew's book. This ties back to the promise in 2 Samuel 7 where God promised David a son who would be a king forever. It also points forward to the final words of Jesus in this book where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like church, Jesus is 
the fulfillment of the promise made to David. After he died and rose again, according to the scriptures, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He sits upon a throne, ruling. He sits upon a throne, reigning forever. He's the fulfillment of the promise to David. And yet, his tangible rule on earth, like what we experience here and now, is not yet as it is in heaven, is it? The wait is over, and yet it's not yet over. See, the gospel, like the, the, the good news for you and me, has the same shape as this genealogy. The gospel leads us up to salvation, but also down into the advent tension of real life and into the waiting. The waiting. Waiting for God's perfect rule. His perfect will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Waiting for his perfect justice. His perfect peace. And so ask yourself again this morning, what am I waiting for? Advent is an invitation for you to be completely honest to this question. And I actually want to challenge you this week to maybe even make a list this year. Things that you're waiting for, longing for. And what areas of your life are you waiting for full and final redemption? I'm talking to Christians now because these things will be yours when Christ returns. But for now, we're waiting. What are you waiting for? What do you long to be fully and finally redeemed from? Some besetting sin? Some area of your life that just really needs to be fully and finally put to death? Things you long to be fully and finally broken free from? Anxiety, comparisons, your past, generational sin patterns, discontentments. What wounds do you carry around that you long to be healed? Traumas, hurt. Betrayal, being overlooked, unloved, neglected, abused even, alone. What weaknesses do you have that you, that you long to be made strong? What limitations, what disabilities, what failing health, what mental health, what chronic illness in yourself or in others that you love? This isn't just a self-focused question. Look around you in this room, the people you love, the people you care for. What sadnesses are you waiting to see lifted? 
As you look around your life and the world, what confusions are you waiting to see set clear? What sufferings are you waiting to go away? What inconsolable things are you waiting to be consoled? What wars, what fighting are you waiting to see cease? What injustices are you seeing to be made right? What evils are you waiting to see eradicated? What spiritual warfare are you waiting to see destroyed? What loved ones are you waiting to see resurrected? This is what Advent is about. Advent is the season in which we wait to see what God will do. It's an invitation to reflect upon the anguish and the pain, the even hopelessness that we feel sometimes in this life. Listen, the great theme of Advent, the greatest theme of Advent, is hope. It's hope. But it's not tolerable to speak of hope unless we're willing and able to look squarely and realistically at our overwhelming need for hope. There's an old Anglican saying that Advent begins in the dark. That's why in some hardcore Advent circles, there's no Christmas music until Christmas. No Christmas lights until Christmas. No three-foot-tall, kitschy Christmas candles from the 80s until Christmas. Can you imagine? And in a very real way, Advent does begin in the dark. But it doesn't end there. The shape of Matthew's genealogy and the shape of the gospel remind us that the waiting is over And yet it's not yet over, but it will one day be fully and finally over. Church, Christ will return. He will. Inasmuch as the first coming of Jesus, his first advent was promised and fulfilled, though it took centuries of waiting, so too his second coming has been promised and will be fulfilled, though it take centuries of waiting. And Advent is a time for us to reflect on that and, and to look forward with certain and sure hope. To get our eyes off of the, the news and the gloom and the doom and be reminded that evil and brokenness of this world is what is doomed It'll all be wiped away along with our tears. You and I will experience full and final redemption. All your wounds will be fully and finally healed. 
all your weaknesses will be fully and finally strengthened. Sadness won't exist. Confusion's made clear. Spiritual warfare over suffering, war, injustice, oppression. They will all meet their forever end. And God's peace, his perfect shalom will cover the earth. His glory will fill the earth. His will will be perfectly done on earth as it is in heaven. It will. That's what we're waiting for. This is what Advent is about. And so would you take some time this Advent season to slow down and be brutally honest about what you're waiting for and look forward with hope for when Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are awaiting people. And for these Next few weeks, would we really lean into the trifle reality that the waiting is over, and yet it's not yet over, but it will one day be fully and finally over. Father, would you help us to be your waiting people? Your, your word actually teaches us that you are good to those who wait for you. And so remind us now that you're good to us in the waiting. Like you're not just delaying, you're not just dallying and stringing us along. You're doing something in us, even in the waiting, shaping us as your waiting people. God, would you help us to delight in the reality? that you're with us. That in that one sense, the waiting is over. Would you grow us in a, as a humble and dependent and waiting and expectant and hoped-filled posture all while enjoying your current and very present goodness and your current and very present presence? as we look forward to an even greater experience of those realities. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.